Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Or you can join us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m. Day one of coming on staff here, uh, Brian and I sat down, had a, had a meeting, just kind of chatting about what kind of things he wanted me working on specifically that week, but he, he took the time, he asked, he said, hey, do you want to preach on March 11th? And I was like, heck yes, absolutely I want to preach, because I, I really enjoy the process of putting together a message, but even more than just putting it together, I really enjoy presenting it, because I'm an introvert, and my introvertedness makes me socially awkward, so if you've ever had an interaction with me and walked away going, that's a little awkward, it wasn't you, it was me. I know that. I'm awkward. And so being up here makes it a little bit better, like, because I interact with you, but you're down there, I'm up here, there's space, and, like, it makes my awkwardness a little less noticeable. And so I just enjoy this this whole process. I also was really excited because he said, hey, it's going to be from the Life Journal, and it'll actually be Mark 11. And I love, love, love the Gospel of Mark. Uh, a few years ago, I was a student minister and decided one semester we would just take and go through all of the Gospel of Mark, a chapter at a time. And while we were doing that, we, we took and put a word on each chapter that just kind of summed the chapter up. And so I really, I really got to dig into Mark, and I enjoyed the book then. And then Virginia and I moved to Australia, and uh, leading up to us having Easter that year, we were there the church said, hey, we're actually going to go through Mark together in kind of some large chunks. It'll probably take about six weeks or so. And so we went through Mark again. And the week before Easter, we did this thing called the Mark drama. Now, Mark drama is a play that is literally just the gospel of Mark. But it's set up a little bit differently. Instead of having people like up on a stage acting with props and costumes, actually did it in what's called theater in the round, which means you just make a large circle of chairs, and the center is what your stage would be, and so your people act there in the center and kind of act up and down the aisles a little bit as well. Like I said, there's no costumes or props. I was literally in a pair of shorts and a v-neck shirt because it was Australia, and you don't run air conditioning anywhere in Australia, and so it's just stupid hot all the time, and so I was real comfortable in the middle of this thing. And during a, a real unfortunate series of events, I actually got cast as Jesus in the drama. And you may be like, no, you got to be Jesus. That's super cool. No, I had to be Jesus, guys. Like, uh, One thing, I had a lot of ministry responsibilities. I honestly didn't feel like I was going to have the time to learn the lines. Like, literally, if you've got a red-letter Bible and you flip through Mark, if it's in red, I had to memorize it. That's a lot. And not only that, we were I'm an American, and I was going to portray a Jewish guy in an Australian church. And I just, it didn't, didn't connect. I didn't know, feel like it was going to be a, the best thing for us to make connections with the people in the church. And so I wasn't real excited leading into it. But as we got there and we started practicing for it, it turned out to be a really fantastic experience. I loved the whole thing. It was, it was really cool. And so today I thought I would act out Mark chapter 11 for you guys. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> no, I honestly don't remember it at all, like any of it. I know there was one point like I stood on a thing and did this, but I think that was at the very end. That's about it. No, um, it was a really fun experience, but honestly it was great because 
I got to dig into Mark so much. It was really spiritually great. I mean, I spent 16 weeks in it with a youth group, and then we went through it as a church, and then, honestly, I probably went through the Gospel of Mark two dozen times the week leading up to the Mark drama, just making sure I knew what was going to be happening. And so it was this great moment of growing spiritually and growing closer to God. And that's part of knowing what these moments in Scripture can do for us. It made me so excited whenever we said, hey, we're going to go through a reading plan together as a church. And so if, if you're new or if you haven't jumped into the Life Journal or maybe you just, you've kind of gotten behind on it, I really encourage you to hop back into that thing. We've got uh, the list of where all the readings are. They're on the table at Info Services. You can pick one up. It's just a really great thing to do because you're going to grow if you spend time in God's Word. Um, Today, we're going to look at Mark 11, and the word that really, I feel, sums this one up is authority. Honestly, the whole chapter is about Jesus's authority. Uh, It's so much about authority to the point to where the Pharisees actually take and look at Jesus and go, where do you get the authority to do this from? Like, where, what gives you the right to go around doing and saying all the things that you've been doing? And so, we're going to look at his authority in, in this. We're going to look at the whole chapter, just so, you, so we know. I didn't tell that last time, and like half the people closed their Bibles. I felt a little bad. So, we're going to look at the whole thing, just so you know. And we'll do it in bits and pieces. And we're going to see what Jesus' authority is all about, and honestly, what his authority means for us in 2018. So Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he'll send it right back, send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let him go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heavens! This whole donkey incident is something that honestly, I always look at it and go, what? That's weird. Like, I just want you to think about it. Like, Jesus tells his disciples, go find a donkey, untie it, and bring it here. And so they go, they find a donkey. They're like, this one looks good, right? It's a young donkey. Start untying it. And he goes, hey, if anybody asks any questions, you just tell them, I need it. You'll bring it back later. And so that's what they do. The owner is probably standing there. He's like, hey, um, do an untie my donkey there, guys. And they're like, uh, Jesus needs it. But don't worry. We're going to bring it back later. Okay, see you later, guys. And they go with the donkey. Like, anybody here own a donkey? Do you actually own a donkey? No, okay. 
See, I don't own one either. Uh, my wife does want to own a miniature cow, and her birthday is coming up. She thinks they're cute and cuddly. So um, if any of you know where to get a miniature cow, you let me know at the end of the gathering, and we'll talk about how you're going to avoid my wife. So these guys just take this donkey, and the owner is perfectly okay with that, and that's weird. But honestly, even stranger than the fact that this guy just lets these random people take his donkey is the fact that Jesus wants to ride in on a donkey on the day he has finally decided to really let everybody know he's the Messiah. You see, up to this point in Mark, there have been several allusions to the fact that Jesus doesn't really want people to know who he is. It's most likely because he knew the faster he got famous, the faster people like the Pharisees would want to kill him. So every time he heals somebody or he does a miracle, he's like, hey, go, but don't tell anybody. But despite his best efforts, people everywhere in Israel, they're aware of Jesus They've heard about what he's doing, and they're starting to think, this guy might be the Messiah. He might be the one we've waited for. And there are several hints that Jesus is the Messiah in this passage. Probably the the biggest hint is the fact that Jesus didn't walk into Jerusalem. See, if you were on a pilgrimage into Jerusalem, even if you had traveled from really far away, maybe you rode a good bit of that distance. But once you got close, you were going to walk into the city. So Jesus' desire to ride into the city points to the fact that he's somebody greater. And then you see all these people who are taking off their clothes and laying them down, not only just on the donkey, but on the road, so that the donkey's feet don't touch the road, and by extension, Jesus' feet don't touch the road. And that's just next level crazy. Like, you got one good shirt, and you're wearing it, and all of a sudden you go, ooh, that dude's on a donkey, let me take my shirt off, put it in this dirt, maybe mud, to make sure that donkey's feet don't touch the ground, and by extension, his feet don't. Like, that's, that's way up here, acknowledgement of the fact that they thought Jesus was the Messiah. Now, the Messiah was believed to be a king who would come from the line of David and reestablish Israel to its place of power like it was during David's rule. David, he was a warrior king, almost the first time you see him, it's in a fight scene. And most of the times when you see David, he's in some kind of battle. And so it makes sense for a Messiah that's coming from the line of David to reestablish David's kingdom to be a warrior king. But if you're going to war to claim a kingdom, you don't ride in on a donkey. You ride in on a war horse. So it's strange to see Jesus on this donkey if he's supposed to be the Messiah. But honestly, the best hint that Jesus is the Messiah is explained in another passage about the Messiah. Mark only kind of vaguely references Zechariah 9, but Matthew actually flat out quoted it in his gospel. And it's in this verse that Zechariah explains that the Messiah would come not on a horse, but on a donkey. It's Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. 
Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, hundreds of years before this triumphal entry, Zechariah prophesied that a righteous and victorious yet humble king would come riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey. And now the people are are seeing this happening. They're, They're gathering together because they've heard about Jesus and they start to recognize his authority. And as they're gathering, they're taking off their their robes and they're laying them down and they're laying down branches in front of Jesus. And as that's happening, they actually begin to sing part of Psalm 118. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. That word Hosanna literally means save us, we pray. Now, it could sound like they're in despair, but it was actually, by this point in Israel's history, this was a, a shout of praise. They're literally looking to Jesus and saying, there he is, here to save us, just like we had prayed. They're looking at Jesus, and they're worshiping him, because Jesus' authority drives people to worship. Jesus' authority drives people to worship. This is why when we gather, one of the first things we do is we sing songs that praise Jesus. It's because worship is a basic human response. It's a human response of who we are in light of who God is. When we look at Jesus and we recognize that he is in charge And we are not, it drives us to worship him. And worship is so much more than just songs. So typically when you hear the word, that's what your mind may come to. But it comes in a lot of different forms. Prayer is a form of worship. One of the things you're doing when you're praying is you're literally acknowledging that there's this thing that you're going through or somebody else is going through that you can't do on your own. You can't handle by yourself. And so you are acknowledging that God is higher than you, and he is the one who's going to have to make this thing happen. (coughs) Giving your tithes and offerings is a form of worship. We just spent a whole series talking about how, how difficult it is to trust God with your finances, but also how huge it is when we do that, because it's an act of worshiping God. Serving is another form of worship, and there's, there's so many different ways you can serve. I mean, just in our house this morning, there's dozens of people who are serving in dozens of different capacities, and they do that as an act of worship of who God is. Looking at creation and just admiring what God has built, what God designed, is a form of worship. And the list of ways we can worship God goes on and on. What's really important about this moment in Mark is that it's really the first time people have openly worshipped Jesus. And I think it's because it's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has really made it clear to anyone other than his disciples that he is the Messiah, that he has the authority of God 
because he is the Son of God. So Jesus' authority drives people to worship. Look back at Mark 11. We're going to look at verse 15. It says, When they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. For a long time when I'd look at this passage, I really liked it because how angry Jesus seems to be. Like, I I like this idea of Jesus in the middle of righteous anger fighting the enemy because if he's in the middle of righteous anger, I can be in the middle of some anger, right? I mean, come on. And it makes you feel better knowing that Jesus got angry, and so I can get angry too. It kind of always reminds me of one of the early scenes in Talladega Nights where Ricky Bobby and the family are just around the table and they're talking about what they prefer Jesus to look like. You know, I like to think of my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because, you know, it says I'm, I'm here to be formal, but I also like to party. I like the idea of Jesus telling me it's okay to be angry and fight the enemy for what I think is right. But it wasn't until I started to dig into the context of the passage that I learned that these sacrifice sellers and these money changers weren't allowed to set up in the inner temple, or excuse me, the inner court of the temple. See, they weren't allowed to go into the inner court of the temple because that's one of the main places everybody would go to worship. And so they had to set up in the outer court. And that really changes this story. See, the outer court was the only place that Gentiles were allowed to go and worship God at this point in Israel's history. Even though the Old Testament has countless times where you can see God is inviting foreigners to be a part of his people, the religious leaders wouldn't allow it. They said, you are only welcome in this outer court of the temple. And I don't know if you've ever been in any kind of a marketplace, but they're always loud. They're noisy. People are bumping into each other. They smell. I mean, there are literally live animals in here right now. And you know what live animals do. I mean, it stinks here. And this is the only place that Gentiles could go to worship. They basically had no place. And so now when I look at this, this passage, I see that Jesus wasn't angrily fighting with his enemy He was lovingly standing up against injustice. Jesus used his authority to make a place for those who wanted to worship God, but were looked down on because of their ancestors. You see, Jesus' authority damages the status quo. Jesus' authority damages the status quo. One of the things Jesus constantly did was take and flip the script. He seemed to always be looking for an opportunity that, to take something that was commonly accepted and tell people that it wasn't actually what was right. See, people both loved and hated him for the fact that he would do this all the time. He'd take and he'd look at a sinner and he'd go, the kingdom of God is yours. And he'd look at a religious leader and he'd say, 
you're just a lying snake. He was constantly looking for ways to take people that were weak, powerless, and show them mercy and grace. And then turn and look to people who were famous and powerful and show them little mercy when he called them out for their sins. Jesus wasn't a fan of just going with the flow or keeping his mouth shut in order to keep the peace. And in this particular instance, he refused to let people be marginalized simply because of their place of birth or their race. And if we're honest, that's a super uncomfortable topic here in the South. You know, our schools and our businesses integrated some 50 years ago, but so often you look and go, did the church get the memo? I wish I could stand here and give you some three-step plan to say, hey, here's how we fix this. But I'm well aware there's a lot of history, there's a lot of background and issues that contribute and that makes this the case. But I also know that our city, that Pearl, that 39208, we're diverse. And I know that heaven's going to have an even greater diversity because Jesus welcomed those who weren't Jewish. And I'm pretty confident in saying probably none of us in here are. So Jesus welcomed us. Even though the people who were in charge of the temple wouldn't have. So I know that Jesus wants us as his people to reach out to our literal neighbors who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who have different backgrounds or different socioeconomic incomes. He wants us to reach out to people that aren't like us and lovingly make a place for us to worship together because that's what heaven's going to be like. See, Jesus' authority damages the status quo, and so should we. Look again down to verse 27. It says, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question and then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I always get a good laugh when I read this passage because there's this whole scene. The religious leaders, they're setting up Jesus with a trick question, and he comes back and he's like, Well, I'll ask you a question, and then I'll answer your question after you answer mine. And the religious leaders, they really missed out on some age-old grade school wisdom of, I asked you first. Like, come on, man, you missed it. Like, that's all you got to do. Like, no, I asked you first. Well, no, I asked you first. And it goes back and forth until the people are like, well, Jesus, they asked you first. And now Jesus has got to answer. But because they apparently skipped, like, the second grade, they didn't know to do that. So opportunity missed. Now, uh, actually, these 
counter-questions were common in rabbinical discussions. It wasn't weird for Jesus to ask a question before answering theirs. It was actually a technique where you would ask a question that the answer would essentially answer the first question. So what Jesus was looking to do was say, hey, the answer to my question of where does John's authority come from is the same as where my authority comes from. And so had they been willing to say the truth, yeah, yeah, John's from heaven, then Jesus would have said, yeah, that's where my authority comes from as well. But the problem was they didn't believe that John the Baptist was actually a prophet. They felt like he was just a person. Had they believed him, they would have went out and been baptized by him as well, but they didn't. And they couldn't say that John wasn't a prophet because there's this huge crowd of people around him. And these people have probably mostly all went out to be baptized by John. And so if they say, nah, John was false, this crowd very well might riot on the spot. And so even though they didn't want to, they had to make a decision because Jesus' authority demands a decision. Jesus' authority demands a decision. They were trying to avoid to make this decision by saying, we don't know. But really, that was making a decision not to acknowledge Jesus' authority. See, they chose to look at what Jesus had said and look at what he had done and write it all off as just false. And while they didn't give a verbal answer, They made the decision in their heart. I think plenty of people in this room might be trying to make the same exact decision. You're trying to figure out if the Bible is truth or nonsense, if if Jesus is legit or not. Let me encourage you to give it more effort than the religious leaders did. They found Jesus to be uncomfortable. They found him to be a nuisance. And so they made up their mind long before this interaction happened. They never really took the time to look into what he had to say and weigh out whether or not it was accurate and consistent with their own scripture, which it is. So if you're looking to make a decision about Jesus, look into what he has to say. Spend some time reading scripture and see if it adds up. Find somebody you can trust and respect that believes in Jesus and find somebody you can trust and respect that doesn't believe in Jesus, and have a discussion. Figure out why they believe what they believe. Pray. I know it's weird to say if, you know, like, I don't believe. Why would I pray? No, literally pray and say, God, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're real. And he's not going to be upset. Like, he knows you don't believe. He's not going to be like, oh, my gosh, they don't believe. No, he's well aware. So go ahead and say, God, I don't know if you're there, but I want to know. Please show me. And then actively go through your life looking for signs from God. Look into Jesus with an open mind, willing to see the truth, whether it's truth you like or not. Because because of Jesus' authority, you're going to make a decision about, about him. The question is whether or not you're going to do it intentionally or haphazardly. we got one last section to look at, and it's kind of broken up into two parts. So it's verses 12 through 14, and then we're going to jump down to verse 20. And it'll be on the screen for you as well. 
It says, The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. He came to it, and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Verse 20. Early in the next morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also Forgive your wrongdoings. Now, we could spend all day, like there's a good five sermons just in that little section right there. But for the sake of both your and my lunch plans, we won't do that. We'll just look at two things. Uh, The first thing I want to talk about is the fact that Mark kind of makes Jesus seem dumb here. Like he goes, Jesus looks at a tree that's for figs when it's not fig season. It's like you don't look for tomatoes on the vine in the dead of winter. It's just not going to happen. Why was Jesus looking for figs when it's not the season for them? Now, you may not know this about fig trees. I definitely didn't either. But if there are leaves on a fig tree, there should be figs. Now, it wasn't the time of year for figs to be ripe. That's what Mark was really trying to communicate here. He was like, it isn't the right time for figs to be fully grown. But because there were leaves on this tree, there should have been at least small figs starting to to grow. Now, these things taste nasty. Nobody wants to eat an unripe fig. But if you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything. And even though they probably taste something like dirt, Jesus said, I'm starving Apparently they didn't feed him breakfast, and he's going to go get some little unripe figs. But this tree that was supposed to have fruit didn't. The second thing Jesus, I really want to look at is what Jesus says to Peter, and really more its implications. So he tells the disciples that if they tell a mountain to move, thing will move. And that's like, that's crazy. I I get it. Most of you have probably grown up in church in some way or another. You've heard these kind of stories from Jesus where he says crazy statements like that. But I just want you to imagine you're the disciples and you're talking to Jesus about fig trees and all of a sudden he goes, well, you see that mountain? Tell it to move. It'll go jump into the sea. What? It's one of those moments where you look at Jesus and go, either that dude's legit Or we need to medicate him and put him in a padded room. Like there is no in-between in this moment. That's, That's just ridiculous. He wants the disciples to believe that if they tell a mountain to move, that thing will move. How? How's a mountain going to move, Jesus? It's because of his authority that it moves. See, it's actually in the Gospel of Matthew 28 where Jesus literally says, All authority in heaven and on earth... It's given to me, which means 
if he tells a mountain to move, it's going to move. But here's the really cool thing about Jesus having ultimate authority. He doesn't hoard it from himself. You see it throughout the Gospels where Jesus gives his authority away. See, Jesus' authority is distributed. Jesus' authority is distributed. He gives it away. And so that's why when he tells the disciples that they can move mountains, they can actually move mountains because they have his authority in them. That's why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Literally what we're doing is we're saying, hey, this thing I'm praying for, my power can't handle it, but I know Jesus has authority, and in his name, this is going to be done. That's what he's telling the disciples. In his authority, whatever is prayed for will happen. And, yeah, I know that we've all prayed things that God didn't do. And we've asked things in literally Jesus' name to happen, and it didn't happen. But when we're praying in the authority of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, is what we're praying for going to point to Jesus, or is it going to point to us? Is what we're praying for selfish, or is it selfless? See, we've already established that Jesus' authority demands people make a decision about him, and it drives people to worship him. Well, is what you're praying for going to make that happen? Praying in the name of Jesus to put his authority behind our prayers is about Jesus' purposes and not ours. So when our prayers in Jesus' name don't come to pass the way we think they should. It's because it was our plan that we wanted to happen and not Jesus' plan. But Jesus' authority does so much more than just give backing to our prayers. It gives, when he gives his authority to his followers, he does that so that they can go out and do the same things he did while he was on earth. He wants us to help people make a decision about him. He wants us to show others what a life of worship looks like. Not a Sunday morning, three songs, but a life of worship. He wants us to take and flip the script on injustice, even when it means stirring up the peace a little bit. Jesus' authority is distributed so that we can be like Jesus to the world every single day. So if you're a believer, the question is, Do you look like Jesus? Not your job, not your family, but do the the things you do day in and day out look like the things Jesus was looking to do day in and day out? Mark 11 is a chapter about Jesus' authority, but it's really a chapter that shows us who we are in light of Jesus' authority. It tells us that We've got to make up our minds about him. That we should respond to him in worship. And that if we believe in him, we're, giving, we're given his authority so that we can point others to him while changing the accepted but should be unacceptable things of this world. Let me pray for us.
Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.